This morning we're going to read again from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, you can find it either on your church app or it's going to be in your pew Bible on page 1,727. And so 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2 reads from the New International Version. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for uh, leading us in prayer and then reading what is probably becoming a very familiar passage to many of us. Uh, we are in a series on 1 Peter. Uh, we started it a few weeks ago. Uh, we began with verses 1 and 2 of uh, 1 Peter three weeks ago, and we are still in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter 1. Uh, and you're probably thinking to yourself, my, oh, my. He said we're going to take as long as it takes, but come on. Did he really mean that we were just going to, like, handle two verses for months at a time? When are we ever going to finish this? Fear not, my friends. We are going to push past verses 1 and 2, and things will move a little more quickly very soon, after next week. But the reason we're spending so much time in verses 1 and 2, like I've said before, is because these verses are foundational for the whole thing, okay? For us to understand 1 Peter as a letter, we have to read 1 Peter through the lens of these first two verses. Peter lays a foundation for us in these first two verses that <clears throat> govern how we understand the rest of the letter. It's, it's like any kind of building, right? When you build a condo, you do, you've had that, right? You drive by on the highway, I don't know how many times, and all you see is a big hole in the ground and nothing's happening, at least as far as you can tell. That's because the foundation is being worked on, but then eventually the foundation is laid, and then it's like, chick, 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 chick. the thing goes up in no time flat. And it's a little bit like that as we study this passage together, because verses 1 and 2, man, oh man, they are rich, they are profound. In some ways, it's, it's kind of hard to believe that Peter could pack so much teaching, so much doctrine, so much theology in such a short space of time. He's talking about salvation from a Trinitarian perspective, right? You have chosen by the Father, you have sanctified by the Spirit to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's, it's all there. And the relationship between the Trinity and how the different persons of the Trinity uh, <clears throat> relate to one another in our salvation is on display for us. It's, it's quite amazing and I hope that we are starting to see how amazing it is by spending so much time in these few verses together. Now remember, Peter is, the purpose of this letter, Peter's concern is to encourage 
Christians. These are Greek-speaking converts to Christianity living in the Roman Empire who are going to be experiencing a lot of pressure to renounce their faith, turn away from it, embrace the, the emperor worship that was so common and prevalent at that time of, uh, of history. And Peter is trying to show them, look, you're going to go through the furnace of suffering, but you can get through this furnace without being burned. In fact, you're going to come out the other side of this furnace called suffering like gold. You're going to be refined by it. You're going to be purified by it. You're going to be beautified by it. That's Peter's intention. That's his point. That's his project. And these first two verses show us that the way this is going to happen through us is begun by remembering our identity. That's what these two verses are all about. Peter reminds his listeners that, listen, you guys are elect exiles. We, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. You are strangers. You are aliens in this world. You, are, you don't quite fit in. But, but listen, you're not just strangers. You're not just aliens. You're not just travelers. You are chosen aliens, tro- chosen travelers. Tro- <laughs> making my own... I don't even know what that's called. Tongue twister. There you go. Um, You're chosen strangers in this land. When you ask yourself the question, who am I? Peter says, this is where I want you to start with your answer. When you wonder to yourself, who am I? What makes me what I am? He says, I want you to think immediately, I am a chosen exile in this world. Now, why does Peter start there? Why is that the important thing? And it's because identity, friends, your identity, your sense of self, okay? That's what I'm talking about when I say identity. Your sense of who you are, your sense of self shapes how you handle life. It shapes how you respond to the ups and downs of life. Everybody experiences ups and downs. Everybody has uh, vicissitudes in their lives where things are going well and then things are going poorly, etc. And your identity shapes how you respond to these things that are happening in your life. Think about this. When you suffer, when, and I don't mean like um, minor type suffering, you know. I don't mean like, you know, I don't know if this is even considered snuff suffering, but you're walking on the street, downtown Dundas, people walking the other way, and you say good morning to someone, and they don't respond. Oh, they snubbed you. I don't know. Is that suffering? Maybe not. But you know what suffering is, and why is this thing clicking on again? Is it hot in here? Are you? All right, Albert's on it. Albert's dealing with that. Don't worry about it. He can do it all remotely. Uh, Think about this. When you suffer, when you get bad news, hard news, when you receive that diagnosis, when you lose that job, when the, the group of people that you thought you were a part of, they were your peeps, when they snub you and kick you out and you're not, you don't have friends, when, when these kinds of things happen to you, what's a natural question that you ask? It's, it's why me, right? Why me? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? You get cancer. You get laid off. 
Your kids are mad at you and they don't want to talk to you anymore. You're, you don't get into the program that you were really hoping for. The, the job that you had, had your hopes and dreams set on, it's, it's not materializing. And you want to say to yourself, what did I do to deserve this? We, we don't ask the question, why not me, when we suffer. We say, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? I'm a good people. And we want to know why we deserve this. Now, the secular answer to the question is quite unsatisfying because the secular answer to these questions is basically, well, it's the luck of the draw. You know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just sucks to be you. It's, it's a roll of the dice and you got snake eyes. Sorry, buddy. But you're just going to have to deal with it. Not very satisfying. The religious answer to that question is, well, you know, you probably deserve your suffering in some way, shape, or form. In the East, it's called karma, which essentially says, look, everybody in this life is reaping what they're sowing. If you have sowed negatively in the past life, then you're going to reap negatively in this life. And, and in the West, it's not so much karma, but it's punishment. Even Christians will, will think this. They'll think as bad things happen to them, they'll say, man, what did I do wrong? Why am I in the doghouse? What, what did I do? To, I must have done something to make God upset with me. Why else would this happen? And Peter reminds us this morning that, look, your trouble, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your trouble, your, your suffering, your hardship is not God's punishment because you're chosen by him as his beloved child who he delights in. Peter's saying, reminding us that God says to you, look, you are not mine because you're good. Let that sink in, friends. If you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, it is not because you are good. You are not His because you are smart. It's not even His, you're not even His because you're humble. You're his because he chose you. It's not because when you hit your, hand, your thumb with a hammer, you don't swear. Or you always pay your taxes, even when you know you could probably get away with cheating on him a little bit and saving yourself some money. No, you're a person of integrity. Or because you're a good friend, even when your friends are lousy and they turn their back on you or they don't respond to your texts or they, they don't, they don't uh, call you up and see how you're doing, you're still a good friend. You reach out. No, that's not Why? That's not the basis of your relationship with God. God says the basis of your relationship with me is me. My grace, my kindness, my love. You having trouble in your life does not mean that God doesn't love you. Look at verse 7 if you have a Bible. Maybe Jonas can call it up. It says in verse 7, 1 Peter 1, verse 7, these have come. Now he's talking about the trials that you face. And he says, these trials, they have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, 
I'm using these trials in your life to make you beautiful, to make you something so beautiful that when Jesus returns, and we're going to talk more about this in coming weeks, but think about this. Let this sink into your head for a little bit. When Jesus comes, when he returns, and he meets you, he is going to praise what you have become. He is going to honor who you are. He is going to offer you glory because of the work that he has done in you. Think about that. The king of the universe is going to show his delight in you to the extent that he's going to meet you face to face and he is going to say, you are spectacular. That's why these trials are in your life, Peter says. So Peter reminds us of our identity in Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to look at, as he goes on, how that identity is played out what, and what that identity is for. How did we get this identity and what is this identity for? Okay? How did you become a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing is right there in verse 2. It says, sanctifying by the, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We talked about election last week. How is election worked out in the lives of believers? Well, it's worked out in the lives of believers through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, his sanctifying work, Peter says. Now, typically we think that sanctification means becoming more like Jesus. So sanctification is a fancy word to describe sort of your progress in becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a perfect human being. That's what Christians believe. He's never sinned. He's never even thought about sinning. Yes, he's been tempted, but he's never given in to temptation. And so his moral record, his moral life is absolutely perfect. He is holy in that sense. And oftentimes when we talk about sanctification, we talk about the process of a Christian who has been reborn. This is the new birth. They become over time, as they grow in their love for Jesus and as they grow in their understanding of what God wants from them, they become more and more like the Jesus that they worship. That's what we typically think of when we think about sanctification. But there is a broader, broader and more simple definition of sanctification in the Bible as well, and I think that's what Peter's actually getting at here. In the Bible... Something can be sanctified, anything can be sanctified in the sense that it is set apart by God for his express purpose and use. Set apart by God for his express purpose and use. And so when something fulfills the proper function for which God made it, it is therefore sanctified. So think about this. A pen is made for writing. When a pen writes... It's sanctified. Glasses are used to improve eyesight. When you wear your glasses and your eyesight is improved, the, the glasses are sanctified. Okay? What about people? Well, people were created to live in harmony with God and with one another. We were created to live under his loving reign and leadership and rule and to respond to that loving reign and leadership and rule with obedience. And in doing so, experience incredible bliss and, and satisfaction of soul and shalom that is peace and harmony in the world, okay? Westminster's Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end or purpose of human beings? It is to enjoy God 
and glorify him forever. So that's what we're made for. The problem is, according to the Bible, sin broke us. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and took from the fruit, they turned their back on God and they became broken in the sense that they, human beings no longer work right. We no longer function the way we're meant to function. We no longer live the way we're expected to live, where we, we, the way we were created to live. We don't fulfill Westminster Shorter Catechism question answer one. We don't live to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. We live in rebellion to Him. But here's the thing. Peter says the Holy Spirit sanctifies believers. They are set apart so that they can live according to our created design. He rebirths us so that we're able to actually understand what God wants from us and live in a way that responds to that so that we can fulfill our purpose. Now, you got to understand... This is not something that you are disappointed to discover. It's not like you say to yourself, oh, well, you know, I've always tried to live, you know, a certain way, and um, now God's going to make me live another way, and me living another way isn't the way I want to live, but it's the way I'm supposed to live. So being a Christian basically means going through life, being miserable because you're doing stuff that you don't really want to do, but it's what you're supposed to do, so you do it. That's not what's going on here at all, friends. Listen to this. This is what one scholar writes, he says, it is the Holy Spirit who awakens within us the first faint longings for God and His goodness. So He creates in us a desire. This is not you being dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God going, no, no, don't make me a Christian, and then you cross over the line, you're like, oh, now I'm in Christian land, rats. No, he awakens in you this longing, this desire. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and leads us to the cross where that sin is forgiven. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to be freed from the sins which have us in their grip and to gain the virtues which are the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus Christ is Lord. The beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life are the work of the Holy Spirit from start to finish. So, if you know you're a sinner, why do you know you're a sinner? Holy Spirit. If you believe that you deserve God's judgment for that sinful behavior and that sinful lifestyle, if you have any inclination that you have offended God and that you deserve His justice, the reason you feel that is the Holy Spirit. If you understand that you need someone to save you, if you're not going to be saved, you're going to end up being judged by God and it's not going to work out very well for you in the end, but you need a Savior, work of the Holy Spirit. If you somehow have come to understand that Jesus is the Savior that God provided for your sin and that if you put your trust in Him, your sins are forgiven completely and fully, Holy Spirit. It's all the Holy Spirit. It's like, you know, uh, I don't know if there are any good emergency room TV shows on anymore, but when I was young, again, I'm, I'm dating myself, I'm, I do that too often when I try to give an illustration from entertainment, but whatever. There was a show called ER that I used to watch, Jess and I used to watch this show, and it's, it's a little bit like this, someone comes into the ER on a, on, a, on a gurney and they're like, 
gunshot wound to the side, blah, 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 blah. he's got, I need blah, blah, blah. And they give all this stuff, information about him. And then they put him on the bed and they go, they hook him up to a monitor and all of a sudden they go, and they go, oh no, he's flash, flatlining, he's crashing. So I need, get me the defibrillator thing, paddles, things. And they, they open the guy's shirt up and the, they go straight and they go, boom. And they try to jumpstart his heart. He's dying. He's dead. His heart has stopped. Reuben is like, you are so butchering this, Paul. <laughs> but don't worry about the poor illustration. Worry about the point, okay? The point is clear. Shock him back to life. The Holy Spirit, friends, he is the divine, divine defibrillator. He is the one who shocks us back to life, you see. He's the one who gives us spiritual life. We call that the rebirth. We call that regeneration. Now, why am I going on and on about this? This is why. It means, friends, this is, this, this is what it means. It means that your identity is something that you receive. You do not achieve. Your identity is something that has been given to you and all you do is receive it. You don't have to achieve it. Are you a Christian? You say, maybe. Some of you say, yes, I am. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, I believe the gospel. Yes, but, but why did you believe the gospel? Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth. We said this last time, right? You can't birth yourself. Nobody has ever done that. We talk about the miracle of life when, when a new baby is born into this world. Well, friend, you're a walking miracle because God has decided to give you new life, new faith in Jesus Christ. And that identity that you have as an elect exile, that is something that you have received. It has been given to you. You don't have to do anything to define yourself. You don't have to do anything to achieve, to, to make yourself worthy of this identity. It's just handed to you by his grace. Now, why? Why would God do that? What's the point of this choosing and this sanctifying? That's the last phrase. It says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, why? To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, Peter is not talking about following every individual command that God has given here when it says obedience to Jesus Christ. It's actually a reference to your conversion. He's describing your yes, your response to Jesus, your saying, I do trust in him. And yet, notice that he calls it obedience to Christ. What's up with that? Well, it's interesting the word that he uses there, it does mean, it means to submit, it means to comply, it means to surrender, it has all these kind of senses to it. Now think about this, conversion, becoming a Christian, it's obedience to a call to give up your life and give up control of it and allow Jesus to be the Lord and master of that life. Now, it's not, it's interesting, okay? 
It's, you know, people who have dogs, and they go to a dog park, and they let their dogs run wild, or if they live on a farm, they let them out in the back or whatever, and then at some point, they've got to bring the dog back, and so what do they do? They whistle, right? And what does the dog do? Its head goes up, its ears go forward, and it bolts, and it goes right to, back to their master. Why? Because they love their master, and they want to obey their master, and they desire to obey their master. And so the kind of shift that, that happens in a person at conversion where they become obedient to Christ is a shift where, where the desire is actualized in you so that you do finally respond. But here's the thing. Now, there are some here, I know, that there are people here today who have been questioning this very thing. The claims of Jesus Christ to be God in the flesh who calls us to faith to be obedient to him, to submit to his rule and submit to his lordship and are, and are saying to themselves, man, oh man, that's a big ask. I don't know if I can do it. And I want to say to those people who are in that situation right now, I'm very, very thankful that you are because it means you understand it. Many, many people say they're coming to Jesus Christ, but they don't really understand what it means, and so it's quite easy for them to say, oh yeah, Jesus, Lord and Savior, got it, box checked, carry on. But you are wrestling with the question because you understand the implications of what it means. See, if you are saved entirely by grace, if you have contributed nothing to your salvation, the only thing that you have contributed to your salvation is your need for it. And Jesus alone is the one who accomplishes it, and he calls you to put your trust in him. When you do that, what does that mean? That means you have no leverage. It means you have no leg to stand on. He has the right to direct your life in any way he wants. He can do what he wants with you because it's entirely by grace. And that's a scary prospect. Because maybe what he wants for your life is, is not that you find someone to fall in love with and get married and start a family, which a lot of people think is a great thing to do with their lives, but, but your call is to stay single. Because God has called you to work in a foreign land as a missionary and dedicate your life to sharing the good news among people's groups who have never heard of it. Maybe that's what God is calling you to do with your life. And you say to yourself, whoa, I don't know if I want to do that. So it's hard. On top of that, you have the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, which are obvious things that, that God gives us to tell us how we are to live. And we went through the Sermon on the Mount last year, and we were shaking our heads saying, this is impossible. Don't ever look at a woman, even my wife, with sinful, lustful, sexual intentions. What? Never? I'm not even supposed to get mad at my brothers and sisters. And I'm talking like siblings, you know, the people that you get mad at all the time. This is impossible. How in the world could I do this? Well, if I may, look at this last phrase. Because it says, obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, this is the weird part of Christian, Christianity. If, if you've grown up in the church, you just go, oh yeah, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And you go, okay, fine. If you didn't grow up in the church, what do you think that sounds like? Like, 
Jesus slid his wrist and he starts throwing his blood on people? And like, what is that all about? It's weird. It's archaic. It's gross. That's why I gave this to Mark. <laughs> Next week, Mark is going to wrestle with what this is. This is, the, this is the doctrine of what's called substitutionary atonement, meaning Jesus being in our place, taking our judgment on his shoulders so that we do not have to take it ourselves. But what is this sprinkling with the blood of Jesus? Well, it doesn't mean actually literal sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. That would be pretty gross. What it does mean, though, is that as soon as you obey the gospel, as soon as you put your trust in Jesus, and that means as soon as you admit, I am more sinful and stubborn and hard-hearted and self-centered, let's summarize with the word wicked. I am more wicked than I'm actually willing to admit, but at the same time, I am more loved I am more cherished, I am more delighted in, I am more celebrated than I could ever, ever imagine. In that moment, you get all the benefits, all the benefits that flow from Jesus shedding his blood on Calvary for you. You get complete forgiveness, you get complete cleansing. All your sins in that moment are washed away. Think about this. What's your greatest regret in life? Some of you are like 13, so your greatest regret might, you know, not be that substantial yet. But I know the stories of many of you, and I know that some of you carry massive regrets from the past. What's your greatest failure? What's the greatest act of selfishness from your history that has has, has tainted, frankly, your life ever since. You still see the ripple effects in your family, in your community, in your own life. You still see the consequences of that. You still see how people have been hurt so much by maybe something you have said or something that you have done, and you feel tremendous shame about it. And maybe it's so dark at times and so awful that you never have even shared it. You've come to this church like many people have from different places. We don't know you. You've got a history. You've got a past. And you're glad that the people around here don't know that history and that past because if they did, you feel like you would never ever be able to walk into this place with your head held high because you, you feel how horrible uh, and you feel so horrible about this terrible thing that may have, you may have done in your past. And here is Peter saying that you are you are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. In other words, you are wiped clean. All that, all that guilt, all that shame, all that darkness can be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has taken it from you and you alone are the one who's holding on to it because God doesn't look at you and see that in you. No, he sees his delighted child who he loves and cherishes and was willing to sacrifice his own son for. When he looks at you, he has a smile on his face. You alone are the one who has a frown and feels the weight of that guilt. And you don't have to. And you don't have to. You are totally forgiven. Listen, some of you guys are self-magnifiers. What do I mean by that? Well, 
you think, I'm pretty good. You don't say this out loud, of course not. But you, you think, I'm probably better than most people. I'm above average anyway. <laughs> That's how you keep the voices from condemning you when you're trying to sleep at night. You tell yourself, I'm okay, I'm a good person, I'm fine. But here's the thing, you say you're a Christian, but you're not really excited about it. Because it's not your fundamental identity. You see, your fundamental identity is your goodness. Or the goodness inside you that you, as you see it. You need to see that you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you. You are out of touch with reality, friend, because you don't see how desperate your sin is. You don't see how dire your situation is. And so when trouble comes, you do say, why me? I don't deserve this. I've been a pretty good guy. I followed God. I go to church most Sundays, maybe not every Sunday. Okay, I do go every Sunday. I'm the minister. I never miss. I'm missing next week, by the way. I serve in the church. I serve in the kingdom. I do all these good things for God. I'm careful with my children, trying to raise them right. I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very good to my friends. I'm the one who's always remembering when they're in trouble and, and calling and texting and encouraging. I'm that guy. I'm that gal. I don't deserve this. And the gospel, friends, is saying to you, you are dying and it is terminal. And God is saying to you, I sent Jesus to die in your place. Listen, if you were the only sinner ever in the history of the world, he would have had to die for you. Think about that. If you were the only person in the history of the world who committed any sin against God, Jesus would have to die for that. And you say, how can that be? Mark will tell you next week. But listen, the son left the father. He was in the heart of joy, in the heart of love, in the heart of bliss, and he did that so that he could sprinkle you with his shed blood to take away the barrier and restore you so that you can live in grateful response to that. Some of you are self-haters. You have never gotten over your sin, frankly. You carry guilt around every day. And you say, yes, I'm a Christian, but you're not excited about it because it's not your fundamental identity. Your badness is. Your self-pity is. Your refusal to allow God's forgiveness to actually free your soul from the bondage to performance that drives you to find a way to pay for that sin yourself. And you don't see, you're, 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 you're out of touch with reality because you don't see how loved you are by the Father, how deeply cherished. You say, yeah, Jesus died for me. This is how you think. You don't say this out loud, but you say, yeah, Jesus died for me, but, you know, and I guess he had to. I'm willing to accept that. But it's a little bit like giving presents to your brothers and sisters at Christmas when you're young. You're like, well, I don't really like them. I don't really want to do this, but I guess I have to. 
And so when trouble comes, you say, I deserve it. I don't hate God, I hate me. And this serves me right because of all that I have done. And so you know that God loves you, but deep down inside you really question whether he likes you. You need to remember, friends, Jesus was glad to die for you. Are you willing to believe that? Think about this. Imagine if you were the only sinner on earth and Jesus was asked by the Father, will you go rescue that one sinner? It will require that you feel the full weight of my infinite wrath and justice against wickedness. This is what will happen. This is what you'll have to face. And Jesus said, I am willing to do it because I will not be fully satisfied until I have them. Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. What was the joy? Are you willing to believe that it's you? Imagine if you were the only one who had ever sinned, Jesus would have been glad to go to the cross for you because you're the joy set before him. This is your identity. And this is your task for the rest of your life. Let me tell you, Christian life is pretty simple when it all comes down to it, and it's this. Believe the gospel. You self-magnifiers, you need to believe the gospel that you are more sinful than you're willing to admit. But you self-haters, you need to believe the gospel. You're more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. And that's the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your salvation. Oh, if we would only believe it. What kind of people would we be, Lord, if we believed the gospel, if we really believed that not only you had to die, but you were glad to. That not only are we sinners, but we are saints. Father, help us to believe that gospel, to live out of that gospel. I pray for those here this morning who seem unable to shake the guilt that they would for every one look at their sin take ten looks at their Savior who dare I say died with, with a smile in the sense that he was doing it to rescue them and I pray for anybody here Father who, who still thinks that somehow they're good enough to deserve your favor. Show them the kindness they need, which is reveal to them the depths of their heart. And Father, may all of us embrace our Lord more, more fully, more completely, 
more passionately so that we could be excited about being Christians. Excited. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen.